Thanks, Peter. All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for coming today, especially if you're new. I uh, want to welcome you guys, especially welcome to all of you, though, of course. Welcome back to most of you. Uh, we are in a series right now in the Gospel of John, which will continue today. We are finishing um, chapter one today. So we're actually going to finish a chapter of this book. We are making headway, just very slowly. Uh, we'll have about 17 more months or so uh, still to go in this book, longer book of the New Testament. Uh, it is what we call a gospel. Gospel means, uh, lowercase g, gospel means good news. Uh, capital G, gospel, refers to the genre of scripture that is, that is uh, this section, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the, which tells us the story of Jesus' birth, his, uh, in some cases, his, um, you know, identification for ministry really by the Father, uh, it predecessed, if that's a word, by John the Baptist, and then... Uh, uh, baptized into his ministry and, and then uh, all the way through his death and resurrection. So it's kind of this all-encompassing, who is Jesus? How, uh, you know, uh, what are his claims? Uh, what, what, what is he here to do? What's his mission? Uh, and how does he serve as, as the, key, the kind, of, kind of the keystone or capstone of all of Scripture, uh, the climax? Uh, we'll, be, we'll be doing a lot of that, really every sermon, but especially as the book goes on, we'll be seeing more and more of that. So at this point uh, in, in the gospel, Jesus has been baptized, and now he's calling his disciples to himself. So if you hear last week, Jesse, another one of our pastors, preached on the first half of that section. This is John's account um, of the calling of these 12 men. Uh, today we're going to meet uh, Philip and Nathaniel especially, and this instance where he's beneath the fig tree and Jesus sees him, this really cool moment, we'll talk about that later, but... Let's read it in full to begin, John 1, 43 to 51, this whole passage is in your sermon insert, in your worship folder, if you want to follow along there on a, in a phone app or in a Bible, please turn there if you'd like to see it in context, but uh, here we go, let's read it in full to begin. John 1, 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the, prophets wrote, uh, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Uh, the son of man is a messianic name for Jesus uh, before he took on flesh. So before he was Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he was prophesied about in these terms in, I believe it's Daniel 7, uh, also elsewhere, but mostly from, from that chapter. Okay. So let's uh, look at this passage today from three different angles. We're going to kind of walk through it sort of top to bottom, uh, and we'll start with uh, just this simple idea that Jesus calls people. Uh, he calls out to us. We'll see later in John, he calls into tombs and raises the dead and calls people out of tombs with still burial clothes wrapped around him, as in Lazarus. But he also calls to them when they're working. He calls to them when they're just going about their day, and he calls them to, uh, to follow him. Uh, as we started to see last week, and I already sort of said this this morning, but part of uh, John chapter 1 is uh, to contain these stories. It's John's account of Jesus calling his 
disciples. All four gospel accounts record this in some fashion, each choosing to focus on, you know, different things. For John, this incident with the fig tree and Jesus' supernatural ability to see him from afar uh, is important. We'll come back to that. But uh, before we get there in the big picture, one purpose of these narratives in the gospel accounts is to be a microcosm of how Jesus calls sinners like us uh, to himself in general. Okay, so not just uh, to uh, ministry per se, uh, but just to himself. This, this is, uh, at the end of the day, this is just a, a story of sinners being reunited to God by way of his son. Uh, and we don't think about it all, always in those terms, we can take these for granted sometimes, but the fact that God is calling people to himself without any kind of precondition, without any type of cleansing ritual, uh, without any type of uh, uh, moral requirement of any kind is radical. It's new. It's different. Uh, this, this wasn't possible. And, and so the fact that Jesus is here as a human, the Son of God became human, is uh, changing things. And so we'll, we'll see more of that as it go, the story goes on. But here, uh, it's starting to happen, right? And even the fact, even the fact that Jesus calls people to himself at all uh, is not, not a small thing. It's actually, it's, it's very amazing. It's, it's radical. Uh, Jesus was not uh, a monastic. He, Jesus was not a recluse uh, like the holy people of other religions might be or even some Christians have been uh, throughout history. Jesus wasn't that. He was one who immediately spent time with people. Immediately. Uh, and, and when we view him in that light, this all becomes more than just history to us it, or, or an example to follow, uh, but a grace. And I think this, this is where the grace is, at least predominantly. Uh, we'll talk about more things, but the grace is in the fact that Jesus was actively searching for people. Jesus found Philip, and after this, finds Nathaniel, right? Just like Jesus found you and me. If you're a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian, this is still God's posture towards you. Understand that he loves you, and he's searching for you. Um, but if you're a Christian, this is our story. Uh, it's wrapped up in the disciples' calling here. Jesus found us, not the other way around. We did not find him so much as much as he found us. We're lost, now we're found, like the hymn says, but also like Jesus says in Luke 19, that he came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. Now this doesn't mean that it's wrong to talk in terms of us finding Jesus, because it might feel like us, uh, or to us, that he is like the richest of discoveries, right? If you're a Christian, you would, you would say that, right? Like he, um, he was, that's what he feels like to me, like he's before my life, you know, I was like this, but now after Christ, um, I have something I didn't before. And so, uh, if that's the case, then we're going to talk in those terms sometimes. That's not wrong. Uh, to say that I found Jesus is not, like, completely theologically wrong. Uh, even in verse 45, you see Philip say to Nathaniel, we have found the promised one, right? But I think that this is a common thing in theology and life, that we move from, you know, as our understanding of grace develops, as God's grace gets bigger and we get smaller, uh, as that develops throughout life, we, we move from saying, I found Jesus, to realizing that he was there in our life all along, and we just didn't realize it. That he was seeking us before we were seeking him. Uh, I would say that is a mark of Christian maturity. When you start talking less about you and more about him. Less about you finding God and more about him finding you. Less about you seeking the truth and more about the truth in flesh seeking you out. 
uh, it's hard not to make that change when God's grace gets bigger, when our sin gets bigger, but his grace gets even more big, and then we just get less in the story. Um, I would also say, you know, when, when you see this theme in the Bible, like I mentioned Luke 19 a second ago about um, Jesus seeking, but when you see this theme, it's usually married to the idea of joy. Uh, so think of that parable where, you know, it says that there's a lost sheep and, and there's one of the 99 and in his joy he went and found the sheep, right? It's about God finding lost people. Um, God delights in doing this. Like if, if, we take the, if we take the idea away from God of God finding us, we take away from God his joy and his happiness. Uh, so like you might, you, know, you might be excited to find something you lost. I get this a lot. Um, I lose things a lot. Uh, but when I find it, I'm like, this, that, this, is, this is a good thing. This is exciting. Actually, as a parent, you know, when I find a lost toy for my kids um, and they get excited, I'm like, that's kind of, you know, where was this thing embedded in the carpet, you know, for, uh, for two years? But like, well, that's where it is. But it gives us some joy. And I think with God, and the reason it does is because we're made in God's image. And it gives God joy to find you. Uh, it's just not a contra- contractual mathematical thing. This is a living, breathing being who made you. And though you were lost to him, he pursued you. And, um, and so joy then in being found, but never forget that God gets joy in finding you. He loves you. Uh, he's not arm twisted into saving you, but, but delights in finding you, um, even though you and I had drifted so far from him. All right. Now, the, the last question to ask with this first section is, in what, in what state are the disciples called? In what state are, are we called or saved? And the answer to that, of course, is as sinners, right? Uh, these men, uh, these disciples are not the best of the best. They're not the elite. There's no uh, fill-in-the-bubble test that people had to take before they were called from Jesus. They, they're young fishermen. They're probably in their late teens. They're, they're not the richest. They're not the most intelligent they're certainly not the most moral of people. Uh, if you know the disciples' story throughout the, the Gospels, uh, if you don't yet, you will see that these are people like us. They're not the best and brightest. And they don't, they're not saved because they get it. They're saved just because. And so we're, we're left then with this question. We should, as, as you're reading this, we, we should be left the question of why Peter? Why Andrew? Why Philip? Why Nathaniel? Why James? Why, why John? And we're sort of left with then this huge question mark as to why. There's, there's no answer. Uh, if you didn't know that, I know you're seeing it here, but if you didn't know like the rest of the gospel accounts, there's no answer given as to why these men were called. It, none. And, uh, and I, I would say to you, don't read over that. Like, actually, we're supposed to see something in the white space. We're supposed to have like a non-answer. And there's grace in that because if there was an answer they would be called because of what that answer is, right? If there was an answer to that question of why they were called and saved, well, then that would be the thing. But because there's no answer given, it must be love. It must be saved just because God wanted to, because it makes him happy, because he loves his creation, even though they've sinned against him and wandered so far. Do you see that? The absence of a reason is the presence of grace. If there was a reason for their calling that was bent on something they did, that that would mean the absence of grace. But, But the grace of God is expressed in the fact 
that there's just no reason. Uh, so like a, a parent might say about their kid or a spouse to their husband to a wife or wife to a husband, why do you love that person? Just because. Wait, I just do. I just do. All right, so you might be wondering, though, why, with all that said, so we see grace in that, you might be wondering, well, why does Jesus then call Nathanael an Israelite indeed in whom there is no like falsehood or no, or no deceit? Uh, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? You don't see Jesus talking these terms uh, too much about people. Uh, he's usually uh, he's always in love, but a lot of times it's just brutal honesty about, about maybe uh, some of their, uh, their fallenness or something like that or just nothing. But in this case, like, he's looking at Nathaniel and saying, oh, there's something in this guy that's, uh, that, that's different, and he, he highlights it. Uh, in context, it's kind of unclear as to why this is the case and why it's so infrequent. We don't totally know. Uh, commentators disagree. But it could mean one of two things. It could mean, one, that he was a man after the truth, because the opposite of deceit is truth, right? So Jesus is saying this man has faith. He is after the truth. He's... Uh, he has messianic hope in him. So he, in that sense, he's a little more ready for me uh, than, than others might be or something like that. Or two, it might mean, could be both these things together, but two might, I think, has more uh, credence to it. T- two would be to say, maybe this is not, maybe the statement is not indicative of his current moral state so much as it's indicative of how when Jesus calls someone, their sin just disappears. It, it goes away, like in a, uh, in a um, you know, a, a justification kind of sense. Like it's, it's there, but because of Jesus' blood, it's not. So it, it'd be, th- this second idea would be to say, Nathaniel did have deceit. How could he not? Has any human ever lived who's not had falsehood or deceit in them uh, except Jesus? This would be to say, Nathaniel actually did have deceit, But when Jesus calls him, in one sense, he doesn't anymore. Not because of him, but because of what the gospel is, the power of the gospel. In fact, if you kind of back up here a little bit and look at how Jesus is described as a Nazarite, remember when Philip says, we found found the Messiah, the promised one, It's, it's it's a Nazarite. If you look at how he's described there, he's described as, uh, or likened to Nazareth, uh, and Nathaniel says, well, what good comes out of that city, this podunk town, you know, where nothing comes out of it that's profitable or helpful or good in any way? Uh, that's just kind of the common social perspective on, on this town. You see other Gospels, too. But Jesus is likened then to, to that town, where as you have a guy like us in Nathaniel, who's called a man in whom there's no deceit, I think, like, linking those two things together you have what we call in theology an allegory or a picture of the great exchange. So by that I mean this. Um, Jesus is likened to Nazareth, out of which nothing good ever comes, even though Jesus is the essence of goodness and perfection. Nathaniel, full of deceit and sin, is being called a man in whom there's no deceit. Uh, This is like striking, right? And it's a, uh, this is a harbinger of what's to come. It is like, like Jesus says elsewhere, uh, the day is coming and is now here. I always love when Jesus says that. Because it's kind of like the sense of, you know, the, the inbreaking of all these things are happening and yet it doesn't fully happen until I die on the cross. That's kind of what he means by that. This is, uh, this is a sign that an era is coming when Jesus, the essence of goodness, will be associated with badness, whereas we, the essence of badness, will somehow be declared perfect. 
the great exchange. Now, where does this happen truly, fully? Not here, not by the fig tree, not in the calling of the disciples. It happens when Jesus dies on a cross for our sins. It happens there where darkness overcomes the light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, when he bears our sin, when in that sense he kind of comes up out of Nazareth in the ultimate sense when he dies on the cross uh, for for our sins. And when we are declared righteous, we're declared holy and perfect. I, I said here before, this is not my thing, many have said this before, but um, I think it might be C.S. Lewis actually, I can't remember, but um, whereas Christians, when we talk about ourselves, you know, we, we either say that we're the worst of the worst or we're perfect. But one thing we can't say about ourselves as Christians is that we're pretty good people. You understand how that can be? how it has to be the case with Jesus. We are rotting corpses in the ground spiritually, way worse than you'll ever possibly have a nightmare about. And at the exact same time, we're perfect and pristine and washed and holy and sons and daughters of the king. And the way those two things can coexist is only if you're saved by nothing you do, but only by the great exchange, by Jesus dying for you. And in your place. So you are declared something you're not because Jesus took your place in the place where you should be. Or another way to say this would be, Jesus gets what he doesn't deserve in death, and we get what we don't deserve in life. That's what's happening here in this scandalous, unjust, you know, rule-breaking kind of way. Uh, Jesus came into the world to take on the darkness for you and me. And this exchange with Nathaniel is a whisper that, that that day is coming. It's a look ahead. All right, let's talk about the fig tree next. I'll read verse 48 again. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip calls you, when you were under the fig tree, I, I saw you. So, um, this is one of Jesus' early demonstrations of, of his divinity, his divine power. Uh, this would be like, you know, me saying uh, to Highland, I'm going to point you out for a second, brother, uh, this morning, I saw you eating eggs and bacon for breakfast this morning. And let's just assume you did. And then you would say, that's really weird. Like, is there a camera in my house? And I would say, no, there wasn't. And you would, and you would say, okay, still weird, or whatever you'd say. But um, that's what it would have been like. It would have been like this. I was alone, though. I was alone when I was doing this, and now Jesus is saying, um, I saw you there, though, and I, I saw where you were. I knew you were by a fig tree this morning. That's how, that's how this is like a divine, uh, you know, uh, omnipotence. It's, 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 God, God is everywhere. Uh, he is omnipresent. Um, this, this idea that even though he's a human being like us, he's fully divine. But it also shows us a, a type of intimacy with sinners, an, an interest in saving us, uh, and, I, and I think, too, that he sees us before he calls us. Isn't that kind of a cool theme? Like you have this picture of Jesus. He, he sees, he knows us, he sees us, and that happens before he saves us. Uh, if you're not a Christian yet in the room, I hope this is encouraging to you. Uh, this is true, though. Let me just say that. This is, this is, this is who Jesus is. Uh, he is not someone who responds to you after you first respond to him. He is already seeing you. He already knows you. Uh, he's already interested more, more than you are in your salvation. And so when you are saved, that, that, ser- that should serve as the comforting backdrop to your story. So you rely more on a prayer you prayed and 
or less on that and more on Jesus' pursuit of you before you converted. I don't know if you guys have uh, heard of or seen this uh, Disney Plus series. It's a Marvel thing called What If? Have you guys heard of this uh, series? Some of you are nodding. It's, a, it's an animated thing where it's just these different, what if this happened in the Marvel movies? If you don't like Marvel movies, bear with me for just two minutes, all right? Or less. But um, it's this story about, there's in the, in the uh, things, there's the, uh, the episodes, there's this character called the Watcher. And he narrates the whole thing. And he's just, it, the, but his whole thing is he watches all these stories and different things in different dimensions, but he never interferes. That's kind of his thing. I always watch, but what does he say in the beginning? It's, uh, I should memorize it by now, but I, I never interfere. I never, you know, change things. Uh, and, I, and I think, like, I was thinking about that this week because I thought you have in Jesus here the, the picture of the opposite, right? Someone who's watching, but then he's interceding. What's interesting, though, in the, in the, in the What If movies is at some point the, the guy, the watcher, does intercede. Like, he, he uh, can't handle it anymore, or he just has to go in and stop this bad thing from happening. He, he effectively meddles, you know? And I think that's, uh, so Jesus is not like the watcher, but I think that at the end of the, at the, end of the series, if you've seen it, uh, we get that feeling of, oh, that was right for him to do it. Like, the watcher is just watching and allowing all this stuff to happen. Like, when's, like, the, the justice and when's the resolution? When's the salvation? When's the help going to come? And he does at the end. I think, like, when Jesus calls the disciples, this is kind of what you see. And when he, when he calls Nathaniel, he's saying, I saw you before I helped you, but now I'm helping you. I saw you before I called you, but, but now, I'm, now I'm calling you. All right, so... Lots of grace in that, and yet, <laughs> I don't know if you guys feel this or not with this passage. Um, I don't know if I actually really have until I spent more time in it um, this week. I don't know if I have felt this way uh, before about this passage. I love this passage, but um, I, I felt a bit of fear, uh, or, or I, I, I understood that, okay, you could read this and feel, you, you could feel like this is kind of frightening too. There's all this comfort, but it could be frightening as well because, you know, you could say, well, you saw me when I was alone under a fig tree? What else have you seen me do? What other things have you peered into my life about, right? Did, did, you, did you see me last Thursday night when I did that thing that I'm now paralyzed over? Yes. Did you see me yelling at my kids? Yes. Or clicking on that website? Yes. Or self-promoting? Yes or gossiping about my friend, or being a hypocrite? The answer, of course, is yes, right? But do you see the grace in this? Nathaniel had all these things in his life. Maybe not the website thing, but, you know. He, Jesus totally knew him. I mean, knew, knew him. But if I'm Nathaniel, I'm thinking, like, that's what you chose to highlight? Like, of all the things you've seen me do, you chose to say you saw me sitting under a tree? Like, that's it? Nothing else? And so, there's tons of grace here. I, I would say to you all, um, I know you're in different places. This is a uh, who is Jesus moment. This is a let the Bible inform for you who Jesus is. Because the gospel is that when Jesus died on a cross for our sins, our sins were so erased that God forgot about them. He forgot 
He, the essence of the gospel is he doesn't highlight your sins and put a spotlight on them. The essence of your relationship with them is not him reminding you of things that you've done wrong, but actually solving the problem of them. Isn't that amazing? I know a lot of you know this already, but isn't that just great? This is true for us too. Think of all the things like we've done. Uh, Jeremiah 31 uh, foresees this in the Old Testament. God says, I'll forgive their wickedness. I'll remember their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 says, uh, into the bottom of the sea, I think Micah 7 or somewhere in Micah says, I'll cast your sins, hurl them into the deepest parts of the ocean. Gone. And so gone, forgotten. How can that even be, right? This is another way that the Bible, where God is saying through his word, I don't think you guys realize how much I've dealt with your sin. I don't think you heard me. I don't think you fully understood. And I want you to know how much I love you. That they're so dealt with that I I will never be reminded of them into history. And, and, And grace is the only thing that allows for that, right? I mean, this is true for all of us. God knows everything you guys have ever done, ever, ever thought, even unintentionally, subconsciously, dreamt. And yet, Because of Jesus, your sin isn't the thing between you and God anymore. What happens as Christians sometimes is that we choose to remember our sin and to hold believers or ourselves to standards and to judge. Uh, But but I think what God says to that is, um, why are you choosing to remember things that I've chosen to forget? Uh, God says in John chapter 1, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, that when Jesus came, he did not bring the law. He brought grace. Moses brought the law, and that served a purpose for a time. But Jesus brought something else. He brought grace. And the, the law is like a spotlight on your sin because you can't keep it. It's constantly moving with your life and shining this huge spotlight, exposing your nakedness, your skin diseases, your rashes, your filth, you know, metaphorically speaking. And yet, in Christ, he shuts, he pulls the plug. And he so much washes us that you can look at a guy like Nathaniel, who's a deceiver, clearly a liar, and say, you have no deceit anymore in you. How can that be? Another reason we know that, that this is the point is that Jesus chooses to make a lesson out of this. Verse 50 says, because Jesus answered him uh, after Nathaniel's like, whoa, this is crazy. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. All right? Loaded verse. But look first at these first two phrases here. I highlighted for for ease. I saw you, uh, you know, are, are you saying, man, because I said I saw you in this miraculous way, But then look at how it changes. Maybe you can see the the movement here, but the change is in who's doing the seeing. Jesus is saying, you think me seeing you is a big deal? Wait until you see me save you in a much greater way. See you in a much greater way. Forget your sins in a much greater way. Wait until that comes. Better days are coming. I don't know if you guys knew this or not about Jesus, but 
or about the gospel accounts, but the idea of better days are coming are even right here in the gospels. That's not just an Old Testament idea, but even in the gospels, Jesus is saying, what I'm starting to do in my ministry is not as good as what's coming later. It's not on the same page. It doesn't have the same level of glory. So when you read and when you apply, don't do that. The Bible's not giving you permission to place a passage like this on the exact same level as the crucifixion. It's saying that's a greater, better thing, more worthy of your memorization or your gazing, your meditation, your singing, your eating in communion, your, 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 your life. See, the greater thing is Jesus' death. Another, another way to say this would be greater than Jesus seeing Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree is Nathaniel seeing Jesus hanging on a tree. Greater than the idea of God watching our life is us watching Jesus' life there. Because salvation's found in him, not in us. Not in the law, and not in our moral uprightness. I don't know, um, you guys are all in different spots, that's great. Um, if you ever are tempted, have or are tempted to view God as the watcher alone, who's like watching your life and keeping score, um, you, I would say, disbelieve it, I would say burn it. I, I would say that uh, in Christ, the scorecards are nailed to the cross with him. In Christ, there's no report cards. Done. Done. There, there's, there's the, the idea that God is watching from afar and keeping score. Done. It, it's, it, it didn't work. It led to further exile and abandonment from God. Read the Old Testament. Jesus is here to make a new way. And he didn't bring the law, the commandments of God, the, the Ten Commandments and other, other things, stipulations that were over us as though they had to be kept to maintain a relationship with him. It's not about you and me and, and what we do. So God's not watching you keep, and keeping score. He came to invite you to watch him die for your sins. You see the difference? The better thing is us watching him. The lesser thing is him watching us, miraculously. Now, that's not, in this instance, that's a good thing. But Jesus, Jesus himself is saying, that's not as good. So watch him. Gaze at him. And another place you see this, this is the third section, but uh, it's just, actually, it's a, a further uh, unpacking of what we just said. But um, verse 51 says, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven. This is the greater thing. Uh, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Which, a lot of you know this, this is a fairly explicit callback to Genesis 28 to Jacob, actually one of Jesus' ancestors when he had a dream. Let me read two verses from it, three verses. Uh, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Do you see the same language? If you were to, um, 
oh boy, this is going to date me, but remember transparencies? Uh, if you were to like to take, if these are like two transparencies and you like, you know, you put them on top of each other and you line them up and you saw which words are sort of like, you know, sinking perfectly. Uh, what you would have is you'd see that Jesus is interpreting Jacob's dream in reference to himself. In Jacob's dream, there was a ladder. Now, Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is saying, Jacob dreamed about Jesus 2,000 years prior to his advent, his arrival. He didn't realize it. The ultimate suspension between God and sinners is not a dream, not uh, an apocalyptic vision. It's not a structure of any kind that we make with our hands. Uh, It's God coming down to earth and becoming like us and dying in our place. I think that Jesus here is saying, uh, basically, one day, this is actually, if you look at two figures here, or things like the the fig tree and the ladder, they're both cross images. Um, But with the ladder, Jesus is saying, one day I will be suspended between heaven and earth like a ladder. I'll literally be held off the ground. My body will be stuck in the air between heaven and earth, between those who are buried in their sins and the Holy One who's seeking to reconcile all things to himself. I will fulfill Jacob's dream. I'll be the bridge. But the message is not climb the ladder, but see the ladder. Uh, One thing you see that Jesus says, he picks up on, is that um, angels are going up and down, but never human beings. It's one thing you don't see in Jacob's dream or this redux, right? It's like like if there's a ladder there, it's like, oh, well, I get to climb it. Well, actually, no. (laughs) It's like, uh, no. In in the gospel, you, uh, in an in the, in the New Testament way of looking at these things and interpreting these things, the ladder is there to watch others do the, the climbing. So I'd say, like the angels are descending, so do we already know in John that the gospel is the Son of Man came down. Uh, he is the ladder. He's the fulfillment of the dream, but he's also the one who descended, came to our rescue. Basically here... Um, you have, and we, we talked about this for the past couple of weeks, I think Jesse did last week, um, the idea of the Lamb of God. If you weren't here for that, uh, Jesus has come to be a blood sacrifice for hell-bound wretches like us and, and to call us out of our graves, not just away from trees, uh, out of graves, uh, so that we might, kind of like Nathaniel, sit under the tree of the cross and gaze and watch um, not dying for our sins, but watching him die for our sins. All that we might say, oh, how dark is our sin, but how great is his love for us. Um, I threw up there earlier this idea of Christianity 101, um, and I, I just mean that it I might, might be new to some of you, but I mean it's, it's basic, it's core doctrine, uh, this idea of the, the largeness of our offense towards God, and yet how great and bigger his grace is. And the invitation here is, is to see this again, to see all, the whole Bible is about him. Jacob's dreams, Jacob himself, ladders, fig trees, objects, people, stories, laws, proverbs, psalms. It's all about him, all about him. 
It's not about you. You know, the, 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 main, the main message here in, in today's passage is not go home and call disciples to yourself. In case that was a confusing, a confusing point to you. As important as discipleship is in the church, um, the, the main message here is not Jesus is your example to follow. Uh, the main message is you are in the passive role. You were called. You were loved. Your sin was forgotten. Uh, you're not the latter. You're not meant to climb, meant to look. I mean, all these things coalesce around the idea of God's amazing, never-ending, never-extinguishable grace. So just to wrap this up, I would say, um, I think that Jesus' invitation for us, if there was like a lesson, to put it in those terms, I don't always like to force that in. Uh, you guys know this, I think, about me, but if there was one, it would be see greater things uh, and highlight the right things in the Bible uh, and de-emphasize the things that were meant to fall subservient to the greater thing. Don't blend them together. Uh, that's a big, I know it's a huge issue that it probably requires more elaboration I don't have time for. But, um, but I would say whether you're reading the Bible or living your Christian life, what would it look like to make everything about his death and resurrection? To live out of it, be nourished by it, to read the Bible as though you're, you're in Genesis 28 and this trippy dream is there. You're like, why is that here? And you're, you're assuming that Christ is there. That's your starting point. I'm assuming the death and resurrection of Jesus is the point of every passage I read. I'm, I'm, a, I'm starting there. And I may not always see how that's the case. It might still be difficult, but... My starting point is the Bible reading itself. My starting point is how does Jesus interpret the dreams? How does Jesus interpret the prophecies? How does Jesus serve as the end point? And how do these then look ahead to his death and resurrection if you're before them? And then as we live our life, what might that mean for me every day uh, as, as I go about my life loving the church, spreading the gospel, living my life at my work and things like that? Um, but with that sort of stated and then bracketed to the side, I would say then for us, like, we have seen greater things too, right? So it's an invitation, but it's also like this statement of, no, you have. Uh, we, we have seen greater things. Jesus has found you. He has forgiven your sin. He has died upon the ultimate fig tree and served as the ultimate ladder between heaven and earth. And so... As this passage says, Jesus says, like Nathaniel, if you believe through the miracle, the miracle of Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the great exchange, if you believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you too will, will be saved and nourished. And I would say, I mean, in the long run, made happy. Not that we have joy every day as Christians. Many times we don't. But I think the more we get over ourselves, and the more we make the story about him and less about us, uh, I, I think in general, it might be like, you know, the, what, the stock market graph, right, that does this. It eventually kind of goes up, probably, but, uh, it, but maybe not, you know, some days. But, but the truth is that it's not about you. And it's every single day of your life. <laughs> it's about him and, and what he's done. And we're just under the fig tree, twiddling our thumbs like this one day, and Jesus comes along saying, I'm here, here I am, I love you, and 
right? And, and, and all of a sudden, things are different. And, but I would say that's not just a conversion story. I'd say that's, that is an everyday as a Christian story. Um, and so don't, uh, don't graduate from it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace in the gospel. Thank you for this passage that reveals things to us about you that um, in some cases are reminders for us, in some cases may be brand new. Uh, but we thank you that you have uh, seen us fully, and yet because of grace, we're somehow described differently. Uh, you, you see us differently. Uh, you see your son in us. You see the the perfect non-deception, non-falsehood of Jesus wrapped around us like a robe, um, like we get a glimpse at with Nathaniel. Uh, you, you throw our sins into the heart of the sea. You forgive us. And the, the means of that is at the highest cost. Uh, it, it, it comes at us in this passage like a figure of a tree, like an object, like a ladder. Uh, but we know that greater things are coming in the story. And like the dream itself in Genesis 28, um, we're still on our way to the end game. We're still on our end to the, to the cross where truly that is when sinners are called. Truly that is when we are declared righteous, when we believe. Truly there we are washed um, of our sins and we, we have and see and gaze at the ultimate ladder, not to climb it, but to see the one who descended to come and rescue us with joy, with happiness. In Christ we pray, amen.